Our guest in this segment is widely regarded as one of the leading journalists in the nation. In the 60s, Robert Shear was a Vietnam War correspondent and editor-in-chief for the legendary Ramparts magazine. As a freelancer in the 70s, his work appeared in New Times and Playboy before he joined the Los Angeles Times. His work there as a national correspondent on such diverse topics as arms control and presidential elections was submitted for the Pulitzer Prize 11 times. For a dozen years, starting in 1993, his weekly op-ed pieces appeared in the L.A. Times. At present, Robert Shear writes a column for the San Francisco Chronicle, is an editor at truthdig.org, and appears weekly on the radio program Left, Right, and Center, syndicated by Public Radio International. We've quoted his writings on many, many occasions for this program and are delighted to have him join us for a discussion of his latest book, The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. Robert Shear, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hi, great to be here. You note in the book that Richard Nixon, who's a man who used the FBI and CIA to harass your efforts back at Ramparts, a man whom you cannot be expected to admire, is someone you feel held a much more reasonable worldview than the neocon hawks of recent years who act as though America's best defense is a good offense. Quite surprising. Yeah, we've backtracked. You know, I dedicate the book to uh, war heroes who preferred plowshares to swords, uh, Dwight Eisenhower and George McGovern. You know, people forget George McGovern uh, was a war hero who won the Distinguished Flying Cross and flew 34 missions over Germany that were kind of suicide missions, and he crash-landed his plane to save his crew. And um, Eisenhower, of course, was a great war hero, and Eisenhower was the one who warned about the military-industrial complex. And the reason I dedicated to them is I think patriotism has been distorted in, in, in a really horrible way. And somehow anytime someone is a, a seeking peace, their, their patriotism is challenged. And before I say something nice about Nixon, let me say <laughs> he did that to George McGovern. He... Uh, he smirched him, he attacked him ruthlessly, you know, swift-boated him, if you like. And I remember I was once on a cruise. We both were speakers for The Nation magazine on a cruise about three, four years ago. And I asked George McGovern, I said, you know, how come when Nixon attacked you so viciously and challenged your patriotism and your willingness to defend the country, you never brought up your war record? And, and McGovern said, I asked, why didn't you? And he said, it would have been unseemly. And we don't have people like that anymore, in a way, uh, who recognize that there's real danger in, in hiding, heightening nationalist and, and jingoistic and pseudo-patriotic uh, feelings like we've seen after 9-11. And the reason that I do begin the book with Nixon is that as bad as Nixon was in escalating the war in Vietnam and his you know, crazy attacks on everybody, uh, before he became president, he came to recognize a reality that uh, the world's enemy out there was not the way it had been described in boogeyman terms, you know, international communism and a timetable for the takeover of the world, but rather that it was complex. Uh, communism was nationalist. The Chinese communists and the Russian communists had been fighting with each other, you know, and that's why he made the opening to China. He, made, he had detente with the Soviets. He wasn't consistent. If he had been consistent, he wouldn't have gone, escalated the Vietnam War. 
But nonetheless, Nixon's great contribution in foreign policy was to recognize that diplomacy uh, in, in dealing with this menace um, was much better than uh, confrontation, something, by the way, George W. Bush seems to have learned very late in the day, because today, as we're recording this, uh, you know, they've made peace with North Korea, and they've already made peace with Libya. If they just followed that principle with uh, Iraq, uh, we, we wouldn't have this nightmare that we have right now. So, I, I, unfortunately, the goalposts have shifted, and Nixon now looks like a very reasonable head of state, in, in, certainly in terms of his opening to China and, and to the Soviet Union. The reason that's relevant is that the people we call neoconservatives really developed originally in opposition to Nixon's policy opening to China and his detente. And they felt he was he was betraying us, and they got into all this threat inflation, you know, and he's minimizing Richard Nixon, minimizing the danger, and so forth and so on. And so they've been around for a long time, and their next enemy was George Bush's father, the first President Bush, because the first President Bush in 1992 gave a very important speech. He said, "The Cold War is over. Communism is Soviet communism is finished." And now we can have the peace dividend that the American people need. And so it was George Bush's father who ordered a 30% cut in military spending. And he said, you know, we're going to have more. And it's the time we help the taxpayers. It's time we put money into these domestic programs that we haven't been able to fund. And he ordered his secretary of defense to make these cutbacks. His secretary of defense was Dick Cheney, of all people. And But he went along with it. And so we started to have uh, the peace dividend that we should have after the end of the Cold War, which we've been waiting for ever since World War II. And, uh, you know, we were moving in that direction. And then 9-11 happened. And 9-11 became the excuse for the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower had warned us against to find its new, new cause, new crusade, new war. And George W. played into their hands. And the neocons were off to the races. And as a result, where we are now is we spend more than the rest of the world combined. All the nations of the world combined uh, spend less than we do on the military. We spend more in real dollars than at any point since World War II, more than we did during the Korean or Vietnam War. And when you talk about doing any of the things we want to do in this country, you know, fixing the levees or helping people who are losing their homes in the subprime mortgage scandal or improving education or getting some mass transit, uh, we can't do any of that because that money has to come out of what's called the discretionary budget. You know, what's left over after you separate out Social Security and Medicare, which no one's going to touch. No one's going after those programs. They're great programs, and people love them. And we're not going to raise taxes. So if you want to do any of the things the candidates are promising now, whether it's McCain or Obama, uh, you got to take it out of the military. The military takes six out of ten dollars that's available to Congress to allocate, and and it's inexcusable. We're fighting an enemy that got its uh, can get its arsenal in, in uh, Lowe's or, or Home Depot. Uh, <laughs> these are three four dollar box cutters, little cans of tear gas spray, and you know uh, Leatherman knives. Uh, you know, and, and in the name of fighting that enemy, uh, terrorism, that has no arsenal to speak of, we've ramped up post-Cold War weapons, weapons to fight an enemy that doesn't exist. And the most egregious example, or not the most, but one egregious example are those submarines that Joe <laughs> Lieberman, the senator from Connecticut, insisted yeah. that we have, and yeah. we have two a year popping out. It's a $75 billion program to fight al-Qaeda that doesn't even have a rowboat.
I wanted to ask you about that fascinating example. These, uh, these attack submarines you cite in the book were designed to combat the Soviet Navy in case uh, we went to a, to a hot war, a shooting war, and yet they've been recast as weapons to use against terrorists. Yeah, it's, it's nuts, Phil. I mean, it's just any of these weapons, you know, whether Democrats favor them or Republicans. Because, you know, what Eisenhower warned about is the military-industrial complex has its tentacles in every congressional district, you know. I mean, I was just on a talk show a couple hours ago with some guy down here in, in Georgia, and he says, we're surrounded by these bases. You're going to take away our jobs. That was by design. You spread it around the country, so every senator has got to be for military spending, whether we need it or not. Uh, terrorism is real. There's lots of things you should do to combat it. You certainly better learn some foreign languages. You know, uh, we had seven people in the State Department at the time of the first Gulf War who knew Arabic. We don't have hardly anybody who knows Farsi, what they use in Iran. Many of our people can hardly find these countries on the map, you know. <laughs> and and uh, so, yes, there's a lot to be done. We, we should have gotten the FBI and CIA to talk to each other, uh, better police work, work with the other intelligence agencies around the world. But that's, those are not the big ticket items. We don't need the F-22. It's another uh, $65 billion program for a stealthy fighter, uh, which was designed to penetrate an advanced Soviet radar that they never built. And there's no country in the world that can challenge us with supremacy in the skies, none. And so the F-22 has yet to fly a single sortie in Afghanistan or Iraq, a single one has no role whatsoever yet. Uh, we're, we're planning to build 100 more. And you know what happened a couple of weeks ago? The Secretary of Defense Gates finally did something sensible, and he sacked the top civilian and military people in the Air Force. You know, and, and he said, look, you guys, among other things, they let that B-52 fly around with live nukes and everything without figuring it out. But he said, you guys have been pushing us to, to buy 100 more of these F-22s. We don't need them, and we don't want them. And that was one of the charges in, in getting rid of them, because they were lobbying for the defense industry, not paying attention to the needs of the, the citizens. Well, you talk about that quite a bit in, in the book. There's sort of a revolving door, as has been described, between the military industry and our policymakers, the same people who make policy then go out and profit from the policies they set in place. Right. You know, by the way, don't say sort of. <laughs> it's a rapidly revolving door. And let me say, there's nothing in my book that people couldn't find out if they did due diligence on the Internet and everywhere else, you know. So, for instance, the Government Accountability Office just had a report a couple of weeks ago. You can Google it and, and, and on the revolving door and how many thousands of people leave the Defense Department, go for the, work for the defense contractors, and deal with exactly the same weapon system that they were handling back at the Pentagon and dealing with their old buddies who had the desk right next to them. And in one of the most egregious examples that's in the news right now that I discuss in the book, one of the things that John McCain did that was right, which he deserves credit for, and now the Democrats are attacking him for it, you know, because these are jobs, programs, and everything, John McCain and Senator Warner, another Republican who was head of his committee, they, they, he rose on the Senate and he said, what is going on here? Uh, somehow an item got slipped into the appropriations bill without any hearings, without any examination, for a program that starts out costing $35 billion, but is expected to grow to $100 billion. We're not talking chump change here. $100 billion, the biggest, actually, defense allocation. What is it for? It's for a plane that Curtis LeMay, back in the old harsh days of the Cold War, Dr. Strangelove uh, figured out we needed. And what is it? It's a mid-air 
tanker to refuel planes, a gas station flying in the sky, a big thing full of gas. And, and why did you need such a thing? You needed it because you wanted to keep your bombers that had nuclear weapons on alert 24-7, just in case the Soviets took out our land force nuclear-armed missiles, they took out our sea-based uh, nuclear missiles. You had these guys flying up there to destroy any last vestige of life in the Soviet Empire had they dared to attack us first, okay? That was mutual assured destruction. That was the only reason you needed this this air station flying up there, and we built them, okay? Then suddenly these, these uh, hawks and, and everything say, look, you know, after 9-11, they say Boeing is having trouble. Their commercial division is not doing well. Uh, airlines are not buying new planes. Let's help them out. We'll lease a bunch of their commercial planes, and we'll turn them into these air tankers, Okay. McCain smelled a rat, correctly, smelled a rat, and he said, what are you doing here? First of all, if we bought the planes outright, it would cost us $6 billion less than you're charging, but we don't need it. It's a scam. It was never investigated and so forth. He bird-dogged that issue, and as a result, the chief financial officer of Boeing and the top procurement officer in the, in the Air Force went to federal prison, and the CEO of Boeing resigned. And I detail that in the Pornography of Power book. You know, that's a great case study. Okay. So then the deal is, is exposed and finished, except as with these lobbyists, they revive it. We'll build a new plane. Right. And there's a competition. And unfortunately for Boeing, uh, uh, Grumman, American company, teams up with the European partner, the parent company of the Airbus, and they, uh, they come up with a proposal and the Air Force goes for it. Then Boeing starts lobbying. And just last week, the Government Accountability Office said, no, the process wasn't good. We'll give Boeing another chance. And what, you saw that story reported on the newspapers. It was in the New York Times, big picture. You know, the Wall Street Journal, three columns across the road. No one in that story explained, why do we need this plane? Why do we need it? You know, other than as a kind of a socialism program to create false jobs or something. And, and it was amazing to me. And then in the New York Times, they actually showed a picture of this plane refueling a B-2 bomber. You know, B-2 bomber, one of the biggest boondoggles we've had. That's a stealthy bomber, again, designed to drop nuclear weapons on the Soviet Union, penetrate uh, air defense they never built, and its stealthy cover comes off in the rain. I, you probably shouldn't laugh at something like this, but when I read your book, I had to laugh when you quoted Dick Cheney talking about how proud he was of the B-2 for their presumed role in fighting terrorists. When you noted in the book, the forces they were we were fighting couldn't have shot down a World War II bomber. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows this. You know, I, when I do these shows and I go around talking, I get I go on quite a few, you know, conservative shows. I have military people calling in and everything. And I ask them, I ask them, how can you possibly with a straight face defend any of these systems, $300 billion for the new joint force uh, fighter, you know, the F-35. I mean, I could go down the list. Why does Barbara Boxer, a liberal senator who I have voted for, every time she's run statewide, I knew her when she was a supervisor in county. I've, I've, I've had dinner with her quite recently. I was at a dinner party with her. I asked her, I said, why do you need to see 17 cargo plane? What does it do? Say, oh, it's a jobs program in Long Beach. She said, oh, it's a great plane, great plane. But you don't need it. You don't even need it if you believe in the Iraq war. Even if you think you want to supply, you know, keep going in Iraq, you don't need that because 90% of what you're sending into Iraq, you're sending by ship at a very small fraction of what it costs to deliver by air. And if you want to deliver it by air, FedEx and UPS deliver. They do. And plus, we have a huge cargo fleet anyway. But she's pushing for a plane there in Long Beach because there's jobs, the unions want it, there's profit, it's a Boeing plane, you know, that the military has been trying to kill for 10 years. 
they have tried to right. mothball that that assembly line for ten years. So she teams up with a Republican, Governor Schwarzenegger. She teams up with a right wing congressman, Rohrbacher, and all these people, and they push and they save this this system. You know, so it's all politics, it's all profit, and it has nothing to do with national security, which is why I call the book The Pornography of Power. It's, it is a lap dance, it's a distraction from the real thing. You know, somebody once said in advertising, never confuse the thing being sold with the thing itself. This has nothing to do with fighting terror. I don't think people realize, unless they, they read your book and really go dig, just how expensive many, many of these weapon systems are. A $100 billion weapon system is, is not unusual at all. Well, not only that, but think about when, when Congress, bipartisan vote, said we want to uh, cover insurance, the insurance for uninsured kids, 4 million kids, right? And we're going to extend insurance coverage to them. Bush... George W. Bush vetoed that bill because he said the six, seven billion dollars that that would cost annually, right, was too expensive, more than we could afford. So we would be extending health care to four million kids who don't have it. All right, and and uh, because six, seven billion is too much money. Well, that's two subs that we don't need. I mean, we already have the most powerful submarine fleet in the world. You know, we already had a military that humbled the Soviet Union. So what are we talking about here? What, what enemy is in sight? Well, you know, Joe Lieberman, when he defends those subs, he can't, with a straight face, say it's needed to fight terrorism. I mean, he does, but he can't believe it. And none of the people call in when I'm on these shows ever can really defend that. So what they do is they invoke the new boogeyman. The new boogeyman, with the collapse of the Soviet empire, is China. And that is the most absurd argument of all. First of all, we're in this crazy situation where our economic well-being right now is dependent upon the Chinese carrying our debt and sticking with the dollar. And the Chinese are laughing up their sleeve as we charge, uh, you know, as they charge us interest, which we pay, on the debt, which we run up to pay for weapons that are designed to fight weapons that the Chinese have not built. <laughs> so this whole crazy thing, you know, uh, the China menace, and in my book I point out the the best data we have on what kind of danger China represents is provided by an act of Congress. The Defense Department has to answer that question, and in their latest answer, they said it will take China until the end of this decade or longer to become a mid-level regional power. And they said China's whole military is focused on the question of Taiwan. Now, you wouldn't know it from listening to the talk shows and everything, but in the last couple of weeks, the mainland China and Taiwan changed fundamentally changed their relationship. And the Guomindang, the party that Chiang Kai-shek had been in, you know, led, that had fled the mainland, that now controls Taiwan, they won the election, and they won the election on a peace pl platform to get along with the mainland. Taiwan is the second biggest investor in mainland. Tiny Taiwanese businessmen are all over the Chinese economy. And so the government of Taiwan, you know, sent over emissaries, and they said, this is a new chapter of peace. We're not going to wage war, and we're going to have direct flights now. They're going to expand tourism. So that that whole hoax, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just a big lie. The Chinese are coming. It, if the Chinese made a determined effort to catch up with them, it would probably take them a half century to catch up with us. I mean, it's just utter nonsense. There is not a sophisticated military enemy in sight. Everyone knows that. And if we didn't build another new weapon, we'd be ahead of the game 30, 40 years from now. And, 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 so, and if somebody started building some fancy new weapon, then, of course, we could rev up some program. But that's not in sight. 
And, and what bothers me is not discussed in this election. Both, I, I prefer Barack Obama. I think he represents something new. He thinks out loud. I like him. You know, I like the idea. Finally, not won't be a white male running our country, even though I'm a white male. I think we need to shake things up a little bit. So I'm all for Barack Obama. Very enthusiastic that we have the puck. But it's appalling that neither Barack Obama or John McCain, who, by the way, has been a guy quite prudent about using the tax dollars in many areas, neither both of them want to expand the military. Both of them. And what are they talking about? Why is this not being discussed in this election? What, why did the, was the mass media never tell us about the opportunity cost? I taught economics you know, for years. I, I'm a professor now. We, we talk about opportunity costs. If you spend money on one thing, it, you have to weigh, would it be better to spend it on another thing? So instead of building a uh, you know a uh, 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 hundred billion dollar you know uh, midair fuel thing, wouldn't it be better to take that hundred billion and you know figure out how we could do a better job of reconstruction somewhere in the world? Figure out what we should be doing in Nigeria, uh, where the, the turmoil there. Or maybe we could help them have less turmoil so the price of oil wouldn't be spiking. You know, uh, why aren't we having a discussion about alternative uses of this money? That's one thing. The other thing that bothers me is. We were given a number of lies, of course, I mean, about Iraq. My, one of my previous books that I did with my son was called The Five Biggest Lies Bush Told Us About Iraq. The only criticism I've heard of that book is why only five? Why not <laughs> 500 or something? But, you know, but, but the interesting thing is we, the whole thing about Iraq is this was going to be their new Vietnam. Nobody ever bothered to look at the old Vietnam, which, after all, what is the big danger? Vietnam is still communist. China is still communist, and these guys are fighting for shelf space at Walmart, you know. Uh, they're not building up any big military or concrete. Anybody. They don't control any oil. They don't have any oil, okay? We do this old-fashioned imperialist thing. We invade a country with a lot of oil. We're promised by Paul Wolfowitz the oil pay for everything. Look at the final result this morning. Anybody listening to this, go check out what the price of gas is. The price of oil has gone up more than fivefold under George Bush. He has roiled the markets. He has roiled the place where the politics of the places where it's produced. He can't get along with Venezuela here because Hugo Chavez committed the great crime of sharing some of that resources for the first time with poorer people. He can't get along with Putin and Russia because the guy's not drunk like Yeltsin and <laughs> he's trying to hold out something for his own people. I mean, you know, the whole thing has been mismanaged like crazy. And the real one that gets me is what if there's any logic at all to our foreign policy is not defending Israel, as some suggest, because we have weakened Israel's position with friends like the neoconservatives, Israel doesn't need enemies. But what has happened is the countries that were allied with the Taliban that protected the al-Qaeda terrorists, Pakistan, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, the only three countries that recognized the Taliban, gave support to the Taliban, right, were all rewarded by George W. Bush. We dropped the, the ban on Pakistan, uh, uh, that had to do with their developing nuclear weapons. They were, they are the main proliferator of nuclear technology uh, to Libya, to, to Iran, to Korea. They are not punished. Uh, A.Q. Khan, the scientist who did that, is uh, under a very loose form of house arrest, never interrogated by U.S. officials. Uh, United Arab Emirates, they're making out like bandits, and the head of Halliburton now has his world headquarters there. Uh, they, these people have no shame. And here's Saudi Arabia. If there's any logic at all to our foreign policy in the Mideast, it has been to prop up Saudi Arabia. We have kept that, that uh, monarchy in power, uh, you know, for decades. Now, all that Saudi Arabia has to do, they don't have to drill another hole. They don't have to do a thing. They just have to open the spigot a bit wider, and the price of gas at the pump will go, will go right back to where it was. 
It has nothing to do with people buying Hummers. It has nothing to do with the blaming the consumers here. It has nothing to do with the in, people in India and China trying to use some more. You know, those are long-run problems. But the dramatic spike in, in the price of oil over you know since Bush has been in it, particularly in the last year, has to do with manipulation, has to do with instability. And the Saudis, who, you know, this stuff, they don't have to dig very deeply. This stuff just pops out. They, they know. Everybody knows who knows that market knows. They just have to open this bigot. And they're not willing to do it. Bush went over there and asked them to open this bigot. And they said, forget it, buddy. You know, they own us. Final question, Mr. Scheer. Where would you like to see Americans direct their energy to rein in our military industry and establish some priorities that make better sense for our future? I, I would like the Americans to, to demand that their representatives be accountable where the money is going, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. I don't want to hurt the workers. You know, give them early retirement. That's what we do in the newspaper business. At the LA Times, where I worked for 30 years, you got too many employers. Give them a sweetheart deal. Give them early retirement. Or let these workers make something better, like, you know, mass transit, or figure out a better battery for uh, hybrid cars. Or, you know, uh, there's all sorts of things we could do so we don't put the pain on the people in the defense industry. You know, let's help them out. Uh, but if we don't cut back military spending, forget about any candidate doing what is needed in terms of domestic spending for any of the things that we require, whether it's better levies or better education or better police force. That's it. Our guest has been Robert Shear. His book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. And we have to note there's a lot more in the book than we had time for today. So, dear listener, you're probably going to have to get yourself a copy and read it. And uh, we would also note that Robert Shear's writings are found at truthdig.com, and he's heard weekly on left, right, and center through Public Radio International. It's been a great pleasure to have you on, Mr. Shear. You're the third guest we've had that traces back to the Ramparts era. We were, you were preceded by Reese Ehrlich and Bill Turner, and so we're, we're pleased in our own small way to help continue what you started back yeah, in the 60s. Yeah, I wrote 60s. the intro for Reese Ehrlich. How is Bill Turner doing? He's an ex-FBI guy. He's great. We love Bill. Last time we saw him, he was doing okay. Thank you. Well, Robert, thank you for speaking with us, and I hope that you will join us again sometime. Thank you. Anytime you want.